And a bit of fuzzy logic intro music here. Your science on a Sunday, two double X, uh, community radio station. Now today, we're going to be thinking about this bit of very difficult times over the past few months, over, over the past couple of years. In fact, now we've had lockdowns, we've had bushfires, and that's when we start thinking about food and why, <laughs> well, I don't need to say why we need it, but how you get to it, uh, where to find it, because there's nothing quite so daunting as seeing a row of empty shelves or if you can't get to the shop. So today we're going to be talking to a researcher who's looking at the effects of the local shopping centre on uh, your ability to get food, but also on uh, the panic buying that occurred during this episode. But first I'm going to play for you a interview that I recorded uh, oh, about 18 months ago, I think. Uh, Derek Muller, who was a uh, SBS documentary maker, and he produced a thing called uh, Vitamania, a fascinating topic on the uh, theme of nutrition, which kind of blends in with today's program here on Fuzzy Logic. Science is an amazing thing. I can tap on my phone and I can send a message to almost anywhere on the planet. And if I have a headache, I can take a pill. And if I have a crappy diet, I can take another pill. But in the world of nutrition, it's not so simple. And here we see the collision of people's anxiety about diet with science and business. And this year we will spend globally $100 billion on vitamins and supplements. And Dr. Derek Muller is the presenter of Vitamania, which explores these issues. And now I'm talking via the wonders of modern technology with Dr. Muller, who's now in in Sydney. Hello, Derek. Hello, Rod. Now, Derek, why why were you eating rancid fish? <laughs> yeah, well, in Norway, uh, this is the traditional medicine that's been around for some thousand years, perhaps, uh, where you would take out the livers of the cod and stick them in a barrel and let them decompose and, and uh, drink the oil off the top. So... That was really where vitamins began, I guess, uh, in this, you know, that's where they were found, was in this oil, vitamins A and D, these fat-soluble vitamins that are essential for uh, a healthy body. What did it taste like? It was interesting, a little fishy, very oily. I guess the most disturbing thing about it is that it coats the mouth, and then your mouth just has a very strange oil texture all over it. Uh, my dad recommended that I bring along a lemon to sort of cut that oil, um, but I, I forgot. So there I was with a mouthful of, full of oil. Maybe, maybe better if you don't know what you're actually eating. Now, what inspired you to make this documentary, Vitamania? Yeah, I, I made this documentary with Sonia Pemberton, who I've worked with in the past on our documentary, Uranium. And, and she had this concept to do a big history, sort of a, a really big picture look at vitamins. This idea of a vitamin dates back about 100 years to when we first started to suspect that there were essential things in our diet besides, you know, fats, proteins, carbohydrates, without which we might get sick. And that was a pretty revolutionary idea because before that, illness was really, we thought, caused by viruses, germs, 
molecules in food that, that we really needed to be healthy. So, so Sonia pitched this idea to me and I thought it sounded great. And one thing that it sort of goes to the heart of, I think for, for Sonia and, and I, is this idea of how do we really figure out what's true? How do we decide what's best to do uh, you know, for ourselves and for our kids? And uh, vitamins offer a great opportunity to, to look at that because it is an area where one billion people globally are, are taking one of these things regularly. And it's worth asking the question, is that the right thing to do? What does the science say? So it really is science meets our anxiety about nutrition. There's endlessly confusing information that people get about what's good to eat, what we should eat, more of this, less of that. Does it, is, that is that what you found? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the science is contested in a lot of ways, That this is uh, still a field of, of active research. For example, in Australia currently, there's a massive study on vitamin D going on right now of something like 25,000 people. A randomized control study in the last five years where half of them are getting uh, vitamin D and half of them are getting a placebo. And it really the question is, can we see a difference between the vitamin D supplemented group and the non-supplemented group? And that study is not complete yet. So you really can't say at the moment that adding vitamin D to your diet or, you know, adding a supplement to your life will definitely help or hurt. In cases where people are known to be vitamin D deficient, then having a supplement is incredibly useful. But just for the average punter, you know, is it a good idea? The science is not in yet. So there is still that controversy out there. Do we also see the collision with business because there's a huge amount of money, a hundred billion dollars you're saying. Yeah. How, how do we navigate that? How do people handle the complexity of all this conflicting information uh, with all the big business marketing that directed us saying we should eat more of these supplements? Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the most concerning things from my perspective. When I started seeing things like vitamin water and vitamin gum, coming out, that's when I started thinking, you know, the world's gone mad. Um, you know, if you, could, if you could get normal water or you could get vitamin water, I mean, boy, what question is there? Of course you take the vitamin water. But it, I think it gets a bit silly where I feel like the word vitamin has a bit of a halo around it. So anything it touches just becomes, you know, I was joking around with the sound guy while we make this doco about we would launch our own brand of of chocolate called Vita Choc, and our tagline be chock full of vitamins. <laughs> and it's funny, but it would sell like hotcakes uh, because people would just, they would love eating something that's a little unhealthy, but at the same time has this veneer of, well, it's going to do something good for you because it's got, it's got some, uh, you know, vitamin B9 in it. Why not? So, yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways, vitamins are used as a marketing tool and they're used as a way to make people feel a little bit better about the choices that they're making. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, do, does the industry trade on the sense of guilt that we have? I'm going to have a chocolate eclair, sure. and, yeah. and if, I, if I pop some multivitamin pills, it's kind of uh, anti-calories. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think, I think the industry sort of takes advantage of a few things. Number one, who doesn't feel tired in, in, in this world? I mean, we've all got busy schedules, we've got a lot of things going on, we've got kids, you know. Everyone feels a little bit tired and run down from time to time, so wouldn't it be great if there was something that gave me that extra bit that I needed 
and take my multivite and I'll be perfect. And really what the science has shown us, particularly more recently, is that there just is so much in food besides the essential nutrients and besides these vitamins in a humble apple, like a thousand different phytochemicals. So if you don't eat the full food itself, you really are missing out. And I think that's the lesson at the end of the day, that rather than thinking about what pill should I be taking, you should be thinking about what food can I eat that will really help me have a rich and varied diet. Well, science is complicated and we are going to package this program into a pill with a simple glass of water and a quick swallow. You can have it all in one go. Is yeah, there, that, sounds like a marketing, that sounds like a marketing pitch from the 1960s. Well, yeah, like I, can, I can almost hear almost hear it in that sort of marketing man voice from like the 50s and 60s. And I feel like that was the utopia. Uh, just a brief aside, if I could. I mean, I went to NASA and I saw what they were sending to the astronauts back in like the 60s, the earliest days. And something they showed me was these cubed peanuts, um, that, essentially peanuts that had been broken up and then reconstituted into cube form and then packaged in these plastic packages. And then they showed me what they're, they're sending up to space today. And it, it was, uh, you know, these, these cashews, just regular old cashews just zipped up into a package and I thought yeah this is this shows the contrast and sort of where we've come to and where we're going in the past we thought the bold future was cubed food and pilled nutrition and now we think it's just food just send the food you know and, and that I think is the most sort of visual dramatic demonstration of how far we've come the, the future was bold utopian it was different you're not going to eat a, a peanut no you're going to eat a peanut cube because I don't know why because it takes up less space or something theoretically but not really I mean just send the freaking nuts um, so that, that's where we've got to uh, so even uh, NASA's not immune to this stuff I remember I'm pretty sure it was the Jetsons and the family sits down to a meal and there's a plate and on, on each dish is a pill <laughs> idea, isn't it? Yeah. You can just really reduce everything. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the essence of, of science in its sort of worst reductionist form is that we can figure out exactly what we need from our food and we can give you only that. And what we're finding is I think that challenge is, is not a doable one. There's so much more in food. There's so much more mystery there. And to think that we'd lock it up with 13 vitamins, I mean, no, forget it. There's a lot more going on. Could I survive entirely on pills? What would happen? Well, in some ways that experiment is happening with a, a product I think in the U.S. called Soylent, where essentially it's just meant to be a, a meal replacement that has everything you need. And then you can just eat that and only that. And I think it's some sort of mush, really, is what it is. So I guess in theory, you know, a completely synthetic diet is kind of possible. But is it fulfilling? Is it... Is it Good for you. I I don't know. I don't I don't think there's strong scientific evidence for that. Well, would you enjoy it? <laughs> exactly. Because would you enjoy it? Would you feel better? Would you, I don't know. You might be able to survive, but because you know. eating, eating a, a good meal is a blend of so many. It's social. It's the That's texture, right. the aroma, the sight, and so on. Is there a difference between a synthetic and a natural vitamin? Yes and no that most of the vitamins that are in our pills today are synthetic in that they, they don't come from some vegetable source or 
uh, it's all the same. I guess one of the big differences, if you take it in pill form, you get that and only that. Uh, you know, you get whatever chalk or, or sort of bulk material is, is in the pill, but you don't get all the fiber and the other phytochemicals and the other nutrition that is in something like a real fruit or vegetable. So you are kind of lessening the, the effect and maybe the, the bioavailability of those vitamins. Is that because you need one vitamin to help process another, or maybe not just a vitamin, but there's other components yeah, other in the food? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's kind of the idea in science that you want to isolate each molecule and test it independently. But more and more what we're finding is that there are interactions between those molecules, and so you really can't test one and only one. Like, and uh, there we go on Fuzzy Logic. I was talking to uh, Derek Muller, the uh, producer of the SBS documentary Vitamania. And, in fact, you can uh, hear the full version of that put on our uh, podcast site, Fuzzy Logic on to com, And you can see uh, Derek's documentary on SBS On Demand. And well recommended. Uh, interesting bloke. And we were talking to Derek Muller just before the break there. But before we go on, I've just got to drop in this quirky little factoid that uh, Bruce mentioned uh, from Irish Voice a moment ago before we went on air. He said, Wednesday was World Jellyfish Day. <laughs> World Jellyfish Day. And he said that they took up a whole bunch of these things in uh, the uh, International Space Station. And, of course, the poor things didn't know way, which way it was up or down and then there's a song called uh, jellyfish on the moon we have totally got to follow this up on uh, fuzzy logic because it's really quirky i love that now now my guest uh sathya kumar who is a phd researcher at the university of canberra the faculty of health uh, Good morning, Rohanan. Uh, good morning, Ron. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Now, your focus is on the local food system, the importance of our local shops, and you've also done work on panic buying. But we've just listened to this interview by Derek Muller, and uh, I think you had some comments or some thoughts about that. What, what did you want to say? Uh, yes, Lord. Uh, it was a really interesting uh, interview from uh, Derek Muller, and it was about the supplements. Since my background is from uh, nutrition, I always like advice for eating healthy is more advisable, and having an additional uh, supplement is can be uh, beneficial. But always you have to think about food first. <laughs> that would be my first comment on that. So the the, the supplement would be a backup. Uh, yes. So it can it can't replace the real food. It can give some additional benefits, but yeah, it can't replace the real food. So would you say that the better solution is to have a good diet yes. from from the natural sources? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I'm a piscivore, which means I eat fish, seafood, mm. but I don't eat any other animals, and I only eat seafood maybe yes. a couple of times a week. So I take a B12 yes. supplement. Yeah, because I understand that's one of the uh, risks of uh, mm. 
being vegetarian or semi. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> being vegetarian is a bit trickier, and you have to think about this vitamin B12 and a little bit of uh, iron supplements oh, iron as well. Iron as well. Yes. Well, yeah. I eat lots of foods with iron, so pulses oh, okay. and beans yep. and stuff like that. So mm. I had a I had a blood test, and I actually had elevated iron, which is a bit weird. Oh, okay. And, and there's a, uh, I'm not getting a little distracted here, but uh, everything is fascinating. Uh, yeah, and yeah, so that was my other comment about like with supplements, it's always about dosage. Yep. So if you had like a bit of extra supplements, it will give some extra uh, iron in your body or some extra supplements. So having a healthy food, it means like uh, your body will digest it in a natural way. So there haven't been no any excess amount that will be uh, produced. Well, that, yeah. one of the things that Derek was saying, I'm not mm. sure who was in that part of the clip, was mm-hmm. that there are fat-soluble and water-soluble yes, vitamins. Do you want to pick up on uh, that? Uh, yes. So uh, vitamin B and vitamin C, they are like a bit uh, water-soluble. And, yeah, thinking about fat-soluble means like vitamin A containing and vitamin D, and those were with fat-soluble vitamins. So uh, you can overdose on those, but not on the fat-soluble ones? Uh, yes, you, you can't be overdosed on the water-soluble ones, and but with the fat-soluble uh, vitamins, yeah, there is a... They'll always, just pass yeah, straight through. Yes, the, so yeah. vitamin C, that's right. Yeah, so the, mm-hmm. uh, a, a little, another little <laughs> factoid it was that the uh, Antarctic expedition, Mawson and, and his men, they were eating their dogs' livers oh. because they <laughs> ran out of food. And they gave themselves vitamin A poisoning. Uh, and, and like you say, so yes, fat soluble yeah. it accumulated in the yes, body. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, now let's talk, <laughs> let, let's talk about yes. your, your, your research because you've been looking at the role of local shops. Mm. Uh, do you want to tell me a bit about that? Why do we care about our local shops? Yes. Uh, so my research is about uh, looking into this uh, structural disruption that happened last year and when you think about last year, we had the bushfires in the early last year. And on the point onwards, we had the COVID-19 pandemic. So that gave uh, really a large scare for us, for a local, uh, when you think about a local food system uh, perspective. And because of this uh, pandemic, the, the first thing the consumers, they got really scared about this unknown virus and it started off from there and then it happened in the shops as well. So people ran out of foods and shops uh, shelves were empty and people panicked by it and all sort of chaos happened in last year. So the local shop, they stayed open throughout this period and it helped the people to give some sort of comfortable and comfort for them to reduce their stress and give some food insecure feeling. So the, the local food centres were accessible? Uh, yes, they are. And uh, w- was the supply affected during this period? Because uh, uh, there was a great concern. Yes, there was. And in the initial, uh, when you think about the first lockdown in uh, February, March and April period, we didn't know what to expect. The government was still uh, giving out some uh, really new instructions and shop owners, they are getting used to this uh, new condition. So the shop... The first thing happened was uh, the product, uh, very uh, limited supply of product because of these border closures. 
Oh, and the, of course we had the run on. Yes, <laughs> I, I yeah. Should, should choose my words better. The toilet paper. Uh, yeah. Pan- panic buying. Yes. So when you see the news every in every news outlets, there was a major uh, news running about this toilet paper. Why did we ran out of these toilet papers, and why did we ran out of breads and milks and basic food supplies from our shelves? Well, I, I think you, you gave us a clue there in your answer. You said uh, that there was a lot of uncertainty. Nobody really knew what this virus was going to do, what the plague, yeah. how the plague was going to affect us. And so did this play into this uncertainty, uh, the, the behaviour of people? Uh, yes. So in terms of uh, food security as well, people were really worried about their future. So one thing is about the financial insecurity and the other thing is about food insecurity. So they don't know what to expect or the uh, stuffs they usually buy, they won't be in the uh, supermarkets. So they have to think about different food options, different alternatives. So they have to make some really dis- uh, decisions about what they are going to purchase from the supermarkets. So it did really uh, affected their behaviors. So, well, it, it, in some ways, it's, it's a perfectly rational thing, isn't it? Because yes. You've heard the expression there's five or maybe it's seven meals between civilization and chaos. <laughs> and that's a really pretty frightening concept, right? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and if you, you know, everybody who's done the psychology courses at uni will know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the, the, the foundation of our human need is food. If you're not, if you can't eat, then you've got nothing, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So, your your you have a couple of focuses, right? So one's the the panic buying, mm-hmm. yeah. but you mentioned the local shops, the the, the a shop that's near me. Maybe is that way to put it? Does the size of the shop matter to you in this? Uh, Work? Uh, yes, so I'm not looking into the major retailers like Coles uh, or uh, Woolies. So they are, they have, their operations are a little bit different. But I'm thinking about the local neighborhood level local shops like uh, an IGA or an, uh, an Chinese uh, uh, convenience stores or yep. an Asian store. Oh, yeah, so these kind of local shops. And in a suburb level, they act as a hub for the local community. So in addition to food, it gives some uh, support in a social, uh, moral support as well. Well, we'll, we'll talk more about the role yeah. of the local shop in the community in a moment, mm. but I just kind of want to sort of differentiate mm. the big supply shops, the big shops yep. from the small ones that mm. you're interested in. And I'm thinking if I was operating a supermarket, right, mm. and yeah. it was a Coles or Woolworths yeah. or an Aldi, then you've got this huge network behind you, right? Yes, yeah. So your fo- your work, I understand, also looks at from the point of view of the shop owner, right? Yes, point of a small shop owner. So were, were they facing similar kind of anxiety because they didn't have that robust supply chain behind them? Yes, they did. So in at, at initial uh, the, when the first lockdown happened, they really had some uh, supply chain disruptions and they didn't have some uh, products were very limited for them. So they have to think about other alternatives. Of, they have to look for other uh, food supply uh, alternatives for them. And I imagine they get second dibs. So when, when the wholesaler yeah. uh, is running low, 
they're going to supply the big shops first, right? Yes, they are, yeah. Yeah. So it, was the supply question, like, really uneven, that certain foods were more likely, or, or not just food, well, we've mentioned mm. toilet paper, obviously, <laughs> yes. obviously <laughs> but certain foods more likely to become scarce? Uh, yes. So the first uh, immediate response and immediate higher demand was for the uh, basic needs like a bread or a cereal product, something you can store it in your cupboard or that has some longer shelf life. So those uh, products had the more higher demand among consumers. So the uh, the perishables. The, yes, the perishables. Yeah. Okay. So and and is that's what people stocked up on, or what did people put in their cupboards? Uh, so it started off uh, with the basic supplies like rice, flour and these uh, cereal products, and you can keep it in your shelves. So more more durable ones? Yes, more durable ones. And then people bought more of the processed and frozen meals as well, so they can keep it in their refrigerators for a longer time. So all they think about is what food is going to last for me to sustain through this uh, long lockdown period. So in a, in a time of uncertainty, it is a very rational, very logical thing to yeah. do. But is there any evidence there is actually a supply shortage in anything? Ah, it's kind of a tricky question. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I imagine that some of the supply shortages were caused by the sudden spike in demand. Yes, yeah. But the source of the, of the products, do we know whether there was any change to the origin, whether the, the food were uh, yeah, produced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So initially we had some issues with the border closures because some of the uh, so, uh, foods we were transporting from other states. So when we had these border closures, initially there was a disruption in the chain. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we heard about the fruit pickers and the vegetable pickers. So the seasonal workers, uh, the farmers were unable to pick their crops. Yep. There was uh, lots of uh, wastages in the agricultural produce. Okay. So we're here (laughs) on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. Uh, My guest today is uh, Rahanan Sathya Kumar. Yes, right. (laughs) Thanks. PhD researcher from the University of Canberra. We're talking about food and why we care about our local shops. Now, a lot of your focus is not so much the technical supply chain side of it, but the role of the shops in a community. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Do you, do you want to sort of folk drill in a bit more to that? Uh, yes. So when we look at the local food system, we think about the local shop as a hub for the community. So people, they always go to a local shop for a coffee and then they can get their basic foods from there. And it acts as a... Uh, communal place and they can share their social interaction with others and if you are an elderly person you can go to a local shop and grab your necessary uh, food items from there and you can have a coffee and you can stay in a a seat and you can look into the others and have some social interactions as well. So it's about uh, being in a network, being part of a community? Yes, uh, being uh, in a community. And that sense of feeling was missing last year because all these uh, disruptions happened, the COVID, and then we had the bushfires, and like we had different things of these happen. Well, and I guess also we had social isolation. People yes. couldn't get out of their houses. And we had the same thing with the curse of bushfires, didn't we? Yes, we did. So much of southeast Australia, you just couldn't go outside because of the, th- the smoke. Smoke, yeah. And you can remember the pictures uh, circulated in the media about the heavy smoke area in Canberra, even the parliament. 
Uh, well, I can remember there was a yes. few weeks at home and it was just awful. Yeah. It was just awful. And the fires weren't really close. They were south of Canberra. Yes, yeah. But if you're in somewhere like Malakuta or one of those towns, those regional towns out on the coast, or mm. yeah, do, do, do you get the feeling that the economic side of it is always seems to take more precedence? That the the the, the role of the community, the strength of the community itself, is is not recognised as much as it should be. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. So uh, people always think about this uh, economic or the financial side of uh, food and then, yeah, they often get uh, lost about this uh, food security side. <laughs> uh, well, we, we, might, uh, we might have a little track here on uh, Fuzzy Logic and well, let's see what we've got here. Oh, Gumtree Canoe and if the technology gods smile upon us, uh, I, I'll I'm going to back announce this because this story itself has a, an interesting, uh, this set track rather, has an interesting story which relates to 2XX. And uh, we rode, we rode on the waters so blue. Uh, I shouldn't sing on radio, really, because, you know, I want you to stay listening. Uh, that song has a particular uh, story, and it relates to 2XX. In fact, the entire album was uh, Alan White, and it was recorded here in the studios of 2XX, uh, probably at the old ANU studios in Childers Street at the ANU. And it's a lovely album, and it's called Waiting for the Rain. And I'm going to play more <laughs> tracks of that uh, in future Fuzzy Logic. And uh, all right, so where were we? Oh, we're talking about food. <laughs> we're talking about local shops and uh, conversation with my friend here, uh, Rohanan uh, Sathya Kumar from the University of Canberra, who's been looking at uh, the importance of local shops now, you've done some preliminary studies, you, you were saying, so you've done the consumer side and the, uh, uh, the community connection to the local shop. Now, I understand you're about to move on to the next phase, which is from the shop owner uh, yes, Rod. Right? Yeah. So when we when I started my project, I was uh, looking into the consumer side and what were the issues they faced last year. So we did a study with consumers about I interviewed 20 p uh, consumers all over the from Canberra and they gave me some real insights. And at this stage of uh, uh, time, I am thinking about moving into the supplier and the perspectives of retailer side and what the shop owners have gone through in last year because of these uh, structural disruptions and what was their personal experience and perspective. So I'm going to do a survey um, uh, with all the shop owners. So you, you're looking for shop owners who are happy to participate? Yes. So what, will, what will you be asking of them? Uh, so this is about uh, what... Uh, sort of struggles they have gone through because of uh, the lockdowns and COVID and what sort of support they have gained from government as well as from the community side as well. And it's a really stressful uh, time for them as well. So we have to think about the perspectives of the local shop owner, what sort of struggles they have gone through. And it will give, really give some insights. Do you, do you think there's also a positive side for them because it's kind of shown up how important their service is to people, right? And Yes. Yeah? Yeah. 
And so is that something that you will be looking to discover, whether that's what their experience is? Yeah. So uh, from these uh, uh, early stages, I got few responses from some of the owners, and they were really positive about uh, how they have did things in last year, and it got better this year. And when you compare the last two lockdowns, the this year and the last uh, the previous one, so they had really... Uh, had some uh, solid knowledge and w- things to be improved. So, yeah. And will you get a sense of their relationship or their attitude to the big shops? Is that is that part of your work? So, you know, in the next suburb is one of the big major supermarkets and here I'm just a little shop owner next door. Do you, is that something that you'll be looking at? Uh, yes, I'll be uh, interested in to think of, uh, to look into what the uh, the shop owners were thinking about their surroundings and even with the other supply chains as well. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned government here. Uh, how does that uh, fit? Uh, so uh, in the uh, last year, the government issued the financial uh, supports for the local shop owners like shopkeeper and uh, job seeker and those financial assistants. So in addition to financial support, what sort of other supports uh, they have been receiving from government side or in future, what can they expect from government to do better if there is something like a, a future pandemic or future disruption happen in uh, future? So what sort of support they can gain or expect. So do you think that would go both to the federal and the local government level? Uh, yes, I'll, I'm uh, with my uh, scope of the study, I'm looking into the ACT government level, so I'm not, not looking at the federal government, but yeah, the ACT government and what sort of support they are giving. Okay, so I guess you probably don't want to go too far into what the government <laughs> policy yes. responses would be. But, but, but if it's okay, maybe we can just speculate the sort of things that, that it would affect. And, well, what about, say, the roads around the shopping centres or the physical access or the design of shopping centres? Is that something... Or, just generally, can you give me some ideas about what you think the effects uh, might be? Yes, the design and the infrastructure of a local uh, community is also an important aspect. So when you have like a, a small shop in the corner, so if there is no physical access to it within a community level, so the consumers, uh, they won't be going in there. So if there is a five minute, uh, five minutes walking distance to a local shop, it will be more beneficial for them. So otherwise they have to uh, get into a car and uh, go for a drive to uh, uh, visit a shop in the next suburb. Okay, so the, the five-minute radius is kind of like a key metric, is it? Yes, yeah. So five to ten minutes would be a walking distance. So that was my initial idea about when you think about the local uh, shopping area or the network, yeah, so that will be given an idea. I guess that's challenging too because Canberra is a very spread out uh, city. So my own suburb, uh, it would take probably 15 minutes to walk. I live on the edge. And, and I should say it's not. this is not really about me, but uh, I, I live in Girilang mm-hmm. and uh, Canberra residents will know that we've been out without a shopping centre for Six, I think it's 16 years, oh, wow. <laughs> basically. And the centre of our suburb looks like a bomb site. So we, we don't have a local shopping centre. We don't have that hub, that five-minute 
place mm-hmm. and it means that I don't bump into my neighbours the way we might have once the people around the corner owned the little cafe there and we would drop in and say g'day and we'd get some fish and chips on a Friday <laughs> night so yeah uh, yeah so it's about the whole uh, uh, social uh, experience and the overall uh, comfort they are getting from the local community <laughs> All right now so you, you're looking for suppliers for small shop owners to participate mm, yes. uh, you so you've got a bunch of questions for them how's this uh, gonna, yeah gonna, so gonna I, I'm uh, running yeah I'm running an uh, online survey for them for all the shop owners so it will take about uh, 10 to 15 minutes so I have already contacted uh, the local shop owners and gave them uh, the key information so they can look into our email uh, to me in foodUC at gmail.com and I have I've been there and gave some uh, paper copies as well for easier for them to fill out so you've been, so, you've yes. been walking around yes I've been walking around I think uh, in, uh, when you think about the figures, there are about 150 local shops in Canberra. Okay. Yes, across all six uh, districts in Canberra. So I've been there. And now we're allowed <laughs> out of our houses. That it's, yes. It's, 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 it's a bit easier. <laughs> yeah, I did have some uh, trouble with the um, lockdown in August. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but now it's everything is running smoothly. Now, w- w- what are some of the questions you're asking them? Just maybe uh, so, just the most significant ones. Uh, yeah, so I was asking about uh, what sort of uh, supported uh, support services they have gi- they have been given, and then what sort of uh, issues they had with the bushfires and with uh, first lockdown period in March, and what how the uh, operations got changed with pandemic, and what do they think about last year and this year, and what sort of differences in their operations and in the food uh, consumption and purchasing patterns they have been uh, observed in their shops. Well, one thing that really struck me about this whole pandemic thing and the bushfire thing is that uh, when you do something for the first time, it's more difficult. And so this whole thing has been a disruption. And so the comfortable process that we had, we know where the shops are, you know, you could go out, blah, 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 you know where you want to buy something. Mm -hmm. But uh, the lockdowns, uh, the vaccinations and all that, it's all kind of made up as we go along. It's all being done on the fly because, well, we didn't really... Yeah, that is true. I think uh, in, uh, in the beginning of last year, Nobody thought about this unknown virus and they didn't really have a clue. So when everything is uh, coming along, they got used to it and they evolved. And people as well as everyone got evolved with the virus. And yeah. And then that taps back into the uncertainty yes. and the fear of a food supply, a toilet paper supply. So then, <laughs> then people chip uh, into that sort of behavior. Yeah. Now, uh, you were telling me before the show that your masters involved would have involved you going to Pacific Islands. Yes. So uh, after my uh, master's uh, degree, I was looking into the women smallholders in the Pacific uh, uh, region, and then in my uh, first year, I was looking into uh, Samoan cancer patients and how the nutrition. Uh, uh, or diets can be help them to go through the cancer proce- uh, process. So that was my initial project. Uh, and what happened then? <laughs> uh, then the 
pandemic happened, so I have to abruptly stop my research project because of the international travel ban. So yes, I have to think about what I can do better in a local perspective. So then I thought about after discussing with my uh, supervisors and everyone. So I got think I was thinking about what I can do in a local context. Okay, so <laughs> well, you, you yourself, your own life has been disrupted by by all of this. So you, that is you, you true. have to adapt your plans accordingly. Uh, were you saying, or did I catch you properly, that you were looking at some work in Papua New Guinea? Uh, yes. So in my uh, master's project, I was working with a small uh, uh, women farmers and how the education and literacy rates can be improved among them. And uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> what, what kind of farmers were they? Uh, so they were about uh, women smallholder farmers. So they were... Uh, growing uh, backyard uh, gardening and doing some backyard and and growing some uh, rice paddy fields in their small lands so they were like not really a big f- farms or very small were they farms. subsistence farmers yes subsistence farmers and so rice were they growing yam i always think of yams when yes I think yeah, of yeah New Guinea. yes uh, they grow yam as well uh, <laughs> i i, I Used to buy yams here in a, uh, in the little shop in one of the small suppliers. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> and they looked like a a little hairy gorilla, uh, <laughs> and uh, they were they were quite good. Uh, there's, there's quite a variety. Yeah, of and yams. I am from Sri Lanka, and we have lots of yam back in my country as well. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> and do you, you miss them, or can you get them here? Uh, I think from uh, we do have a Sri Lankan shop in Philip. And I can get some of my uh, home foods and some of my cultural foods from there. <laughs> and, well, there you go. This, this food is a part of culture, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's part of our identity. So do you, is that something you miss about uh, being in Australia, away from your original country? Uh, yeah, sometimes I miss as well. But uh, in Australia, we do have these uh, cultural aspect, and then we do have some of these uh, local shops where they sell these uh, cultural products. I have seen from different culture, like an Asian store or a Mediterranean store. Even in Canberra, there were like few other cultural shops. They sold their home. Uh, it, it's it is a wonderful thing about yeah. living in in Australia and. Uh, and I probably shouldn't get distracted, but I can't help thinking of those divisive politicians who who talk about Australians being overrun and so on. But <laughs> but look at the richness and, and, and what what we have have got from from this. Yes, that is true. We live in a multicultural uh, community in Australia. <laughs> uh, we we might uh, break to a song track here on Fuzzy Logic and uh, uh, a bit of Leonard Cohen to lighten your day. a secret card that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music do you it goes like this the fourth the fifth the minor fall the major lift the baffled king composing hallelujah 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 Strong, but you needed proof 
You saw her bathing on the roof of beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair. She broke your throne. She cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Maybe I have been here. Before I know this room, I've walked this floor. I used to live alone before I knew you. I've seen your flag on the marble arch. Love is not a victory march. It's a cone and it's a broken hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. What's real and going on below? But now you never show it to me, do you? I remember when I moved in you, the holy dark was moving too, and every breath we drew was hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Someone who outdrew you. It's not a cry you can hear at night. It's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah, hallelujah. piece of music that is. In fact, I would like to dedicate today to my late friend Craig Jackson and hearing a piece like that makes me feel immensely sad and how much I miss my friend. But today's happy day. Uh, we're talking about food. We're talking about our local shops uh, with our guest uh, Hannan uh, Sethi Karma. <laughs> sorry about my pronunciation. <laughs> sorry about my pronunciation there. And uh, look, uh, we'll get you to write an Ask Fuzzy column for us uh, about uh, what was the topic we chose. Uh, so we thought about uh, uh, 
uh, what happened to our local food system last year. Yep. So I'll be writing a column for you. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. That sounds really good. And uh, today's column is about sinkholes, <laughs> which is a bit uh, a bit kind of weird, I guess. But uh, it's by a structural engineer or someone who the the geology side of uh, engineering. And because if a sinkhole appears <laughs> near, near your house, then uh, you will be worried about food. <laughs> One of those things. And uh, I think that must be about it yes uh, thank you for, uh, thank you Rod thank you for having me on the show and thanks for the opportunity oh now before you go yes. uh, if somebody wants to contact you to be involved with your study yep uh, so uh, so if someone wants to uh, involve as a, a local shop owner or a consumer so they can uh, send me an email in food uc at gmail.com or they can contact me satyakumarrahanan at uh, canberra.edu uh, okay, website, so give, yeah. give the email, I guess. Yes, yeah. Food? Yeah. Uh, food, UC. Food, UC. Food, UC at gmail.com. At gmail. Yeah, gmail.com. And or look you up on the university. Uh, yes, yeah. I, and I can give you a mobile number as well. Is that all right? Oh, yes. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, my uh, number is 0475614047. Okay, repeat that. Uh, 0475614047. Good on you, and uh, a pleasure talking to you today. Same here as well, Rod. Thank you. And uh, that's it for Fuzzy Logic today. You've had your lot, and we'll be back. (laughs) Catch you later.